You are listening to the Mission Matters Podcast Network, where we amplify the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and experts. Hi, welcome back to the Leaders Lab. I'm your host, Ken Eslick. Glad to have you join us today. I had a great talk. I just got done speaking with our guest, Andrew Silito. You may have heard Andrew's name before. He was the gold medal winning coach of the Great Britain hockey team back a few years ago. He has since taken his athletic background into the corporate world and developed some amazing programs that apply the psychology from sports into business. Hasn't always been easy for him. You know, like most of our leaders, they've overcome some pretty significant things in their life to become who they are today. For Andrew, that was losing his father when his father was only 48 years old and Andrew was 16. And his father, from sort of a lifestyle-related heart attack that deeply influenced Andrew and, and kind of where he is today and his thoughts on leading a balanced life. We talked about everything. There was no subject that wasn't left untouched, including Andrew's separation and reconciliation with his wife, his newborn baby, including having a daughter all the way up into her 20s. So please join me in this very heartfelt and very cool conversation with Andrew Silito. Hey, Andrew, great to see you. I'm excited for this. Hey, Ken, how are you? Good to be here. Doing well. I just listened to you on a podcast like yesterday, but it was dated and I think it said at that time you were in Prague. Are you still up in Prague? Still in Prague. I'm here in the WeWork here in Prague. Yeah, just the one. But yeah, beautiful that, city. That does have a WeWork vibe to it. I'm a WeWork guy. I'm going to one as soon as we finish, actually, today. So Yeah, they're all the same. But actually, the one here in Prague, is, it's in a listed building. It's got this beautiful 360 terrace rooftop. So it's, it's a really nice building here. Very nice. Well, I'm excited to have you here. And as we talked about in the intro, I mean, you're the true player coach, having come from an athletic background, moved into corporate. Can you give us a little bit about your background and how you ended up here today? Yeah. So I'll give it the quick version. I started out life, I guess, from a sports perspective, you know, playing all sports, English kid from the Southeast of England. So football, rugby, cricket, you know, and then in the, it was the mid eighties and there was a roller disco on in my town. All the kids went, and we, so I skated and then we just started playing hockey. Like it was just a big thing, you know, so we were buying ice hockey equipment, didn't really know much about ice hockey at the time, but we had these leagues and we would play street hockey. And, and then in the mid nineties, I, I carried on playing that then the inline, the rollerblades came in, you know, and then we, the sport just blew up and I started to take it really seriously. That was my game playing inline hockey. And I moved to Canada, uh, played there, played in Vancouver kind of pursuing a professional career at, at inline hockey. And again, didn't really have a focus on ice hockey at the time. I played roller hockey down in inline roller hockey. I played it down in California as well. And then when I came back to the UK... Can I ask, uh, not to interrupt, but yeah. I'm just, just so I have clarity, is inline, can you describe like, what is the setup for that? Like what's the, you don't yeah. play in a, a rink necessarily, right? Like it's a different dimension than ice hockey, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when you, when you play at the kind of elite level... Yeah, it, it is on an ice rink. So they take the ice okay. down and there are some purpose-built rinks. So it, it will look like on TV. Sometimes people think it's ice hockey because it's got okay. this plastic floor. The puck moves on it nicely. And so it, it looks, the only real difference is that the, there's less contact and there's one less player. So it's not six on six, it's it's five on five. Is it faster? Um, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. It's more methodical, I would say. Like okay. it, the game is based, it's a lot more possession, keeping the puck, holding on to the puck. Whereas ice hockey, you know, you're, you're getting the puck across the blue line, you're keeping it in there, you're, okay. you know, it's a different game in that sense. So you're, you're on the puck a lot more. So, you know, so, but when I came back to the UK, this was around 2000, sorry, 1998, 99. 
then I started playing ice hockey because that was the only thing really available for me to keep, you know, wanting to play at a, a decent level. So I played some semi-professional hockey, you know, making that transition and played, carried on playing with the British team for, at inline hockey and stopped that in 2008. And then in 2010, became the head coach for Team GB. And that was kind of where things really started to develop for me, both from a, a kind of a leadership perspective and, and I had some corporate background in leadership and so on. But so kind of bringing all that together, it was it was a really nice experience. How did the conversion from player to head coach happen so quickly? Because it seems like usually there's some stops along the way, right? Before jumping. Yeah, it was right about two years. Okay. Yeah, it was about two, two years out of the game. And I found it as an advantage, actually, because I was I felt like, you know, at the time I was 34 and I was. I could still play a little bit. My hit was bad yeah. though, and I because yeah. I it was one of the reasons why I stopped playing. But I felt close enough to the game that I could really empathize with the players. Right, and I felt that where I'd been, you know, in those games where we'd been so close to beating teams like Austria or Slovenia, but never quite closed the deal. I felt like if I, I could help that. I could help with that, and we did. You know, we won Pool B and went up to the top eight countries for the first time. I'm just curious because so I like the it. mindset around this of. When you were a player then, did you find yourself strategizing a little bit? I, I mean, I don't want to say second guessing your coaches because, you know, whatever, they might listen to you. But I do feel sometimes that people aspire to leadership or coaching or something. It's sort of when you're not in that role, you might be, hey, here's what I would have done differently, right? Or here's the way that we might have yeah, been yeah. able to beat the Swedes or whatever it was. And <laughs> did you know in your head, were you starting to strategize before you were even in that type of a role? No, that's a really interesting question because I, if I look back, I've always been a coach, like coaching right. a young players you know i've always been in that teaching learning space but when i was playing i don't know if i was so much actually i, I think i you know i was one of those players that was quite selfish really you know i was so focused on wanting to play well and contribute to the team and win and we had a great coach i think sometimes when you lose a bit of faith in a coach maybe some of those conversations start to come up but i always try to avoid them because i always think that once you start second guessing the coach or you start getting a little cliques around the dressing room. It's usually worse than just having a, a coach that doesn't know what they're talking about. You know what I mean? Totally, I, totally. I just, but we, we were during that kind of rain when I was playing, we, we had a, a guy, he was, a, he was a really good coach. So I was, I was lucky. He kind of changed my, my outlook. So when I became the head coach, I felt like I was sort of building on his legacy, you know, and, Got and, it. Work, so that was, and I know was, you had some tremendous success in that. What, what, tell me what happened. And when, like, once you got into that role, so, well, initially it was pretty tough because despite everything I knew about leadership development, I went in like quite didactic, you know, like everything I know about being a good facilitator. And I don't know what happened. I just became so passionate about it. And I said, well, you know, we're going to be really values driven and we're going to have to play this style of hockey. And, and actually I got a lot of resistance in the first six months or so of playing and to the point where I actually didn't, you know, because Great Britain was amateur, we, you know, we play against Sweden, Czech Republic, USA, Canada. Majority of those are professional ice hockey players coming across to play inline hockey. So they're off season. My guys play inline hockey all year. It's a hobby. So, so there was quite a bit of resistance and I didn't have enough players to, for the team. I didn't have enough players come to trial. I, I thought I'd have like 40 players, cut it down to 16, yeah. then my 12 skaters, two goalies, you know, right. it would just be in a nice, this vision I had. And right. I got there and the rink it was in Sheffield. And it's quite dark in there and a little bit dusty. It's a bit run down. It looked even more run down and dusty, you know what I mean? Because it was just 
there's like one guy sat there with his bag and another guy <laughs> the other side of the drink and I was like where's the energy where's the atmosphere this isn't what I expected at all so you know I sat down and I spoke to the the captain I, I knew that the captain for the last few years was going to be my captain again and we had a good relationship and he gave me some a bit of tough love just calmed down a little bit so I started changing it up. And a lot of the guys early on the team, were they guys that, because you were so fresh off of playing yourself, were some of these guys guys that you had just played with? Like, did you have to go from being yeah, their a few. peer to their boss? Yeah. Yeah, there, there were a few. Fortunately, some of the, the older, older players my age had moved on. But some of the young guys that I was playing with, you know, they, they were now in their sort of late 20s and maturing as, as athletes. And But we had some fresh guys, the, the previous coach. So there was my coach and then we had a previous coach sort of in the interim. And he brought in a lot of young guys, actually. He really took a, a risk. And that was that really set me up nicely that he'd taken that that risk and, mm-hmm. and put him out there. Because by the time, I, you know, that two-year difference of these young guys maturing and developing, they've had, a, they've had some good experience. So we had a really good platform to build on. So the credit goes to the the past coaches as well. But what I was able to do was, was you know, start to bring in some of the, the experience I've had in the corporate world, actually, and what I was teaching in leadership and around structure and values and processes and, and you know, just thinking about more of a macro level, like how, how could we get some sponsorship? Could we do some other things? Could we do some partnerships with people? And starting to think a little bit differently, which the players hadn't really been exposed to. And that worked out really well for us because we were able to raise some money, which obviously makes things easier. And I started to change up my leadership. I started to build a, a leadership team around me. You know, I've got an assistant coach. I really wanted somebody who was the complete opposite to me. You know, it would keep me grounded and kind of irritated me at times. You know, we irritated each other. Right. But I felt that I needed that. Someone a bit more analytical because I'm big picture. I see the game. It's like, you know, I understand the game. I've, I've been immersed in the game. So I kind of just have this internal algorithm when I'm watching the game. And I can, you know, but I need someone to to help me with the player selection and, and so on. I knew what players I wanted you know, and I have, a, I have a kind of methodology around how I select. And so we started to build out this core leadership group within the players and I'm really doubled down on the ask, don't tell. Like really, you know, I, I'd never played on a team that had been in Austria. So what do I know? You know, mm-hmm. you guys might have some better insights than me and showing some vulnerability and, is that and so how you on. won them over was, was by bringing them into the fold, do you think? And kind of showing that, mutual respect Definitely. or what that was the main thing i think so i think that was the turning point because up until then it was like you're the coach you tell us what to do and then i started thinking back to my coach before and how much he involved me in some of the decision making and and kind of always you know you pick up the phone and then i realized looking back he was doing it to everybody i thought i was unique but he was right he's really <laughs> making you feel special yeah 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 i always felt like it was a one-to-one so i thought right well how do i I think the pivotal moment for me was when I thought of myself as being a mentor rather than just a coach. Like right. these young men that are coming into this team, you know, regardless of whether we win or not or whatever we achieve, what what experience could I have, help them have, you know, over the during time that I'm head coach? Because I thought about the experience I had and how I developed as a human under my coach and, and maybe took it for granted at the time. So I thought, what type of people will they become? you know, under my leadership and and uh, as a group. And I, I'm really proud, actually, of how the players have, have developed. You know, we have one guy's working for Google in California, another guy's working at Boston Consulting Group. You know, guys have got their own personal training businesses. You know, they've really, they really had an experience. And I think, yeah. you know, I think that was, I'm proud of that. 
What would you say, Andrew, is the, you said you discovered to be more of a mentor than a coach, right? How would you define the difference between those two words? I think sometimes we get into semantics, but in business, I think they mean different things than they do in sports because the coach in sports is the coach, you know, but when we go into business, it's, you know, we talk about the grow model and things like that. Yeah, but in in Um, your world and on that team, what do you mean? I'm probably thinking of it from more of a kind of a hero's journey, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of tapping into Joseph Campbell's, what's my role? How do I create heroes in this team and be their guide, their mentor to to sit down with them, give them time, you know, make sure that they feel that they can pick phone me up and have 30, 40 minutes with no agenda to right. work through some challenges they, they might be having on a personal level that, that I would, would affect their game. Right. And for them to feel that they could have that conversation, it would be completely confidential. And so just being present, and listening and, and and I suppose that was the mentor in me, whereas the coach was the tactician, you know? Yeah. And I, I got this vibe and tell me if I'm wrong, but just as you were telling the story is that when you were in coach mode, kind of at the beginning, it was, I'm the coach, do what I say, this is where we're going and it's more directive. And then when you talked about being a mentor, it's we're on a journey together and I'm going to help guide you maybe to where you're going or help mentor you on that path. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think the point there was that I, obviously I, I knew this because I'd been teaching leadership and I'd been, you know, but even, and it was a wake up call for me as a leadership coach, because you think, well, I'm sharing this information with you. Why can't you go and deliver this in your organization? And then for myself to experience that same auto response in hockey environment and then have to catch myself and say, come on, Andrew, what, what are you doing? This is. But you isn't know, it funny that we do it all that we do it all the time when the environment changes, like you're saying, you get to hockey and you go, well, wait a minute, this is how a coach acts, right? And you, even if it goes against what yeah. you know, and I think, I think sometimes as leaders, we even do it with our kids, like, you know, or, you know, one way at home, another way at work, you know, and it's like trying to find that, that consistency that it applies all the way around if it's good leadership, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah, the real, I think, you know, bringing it in home and my daughter, my eldest daughter's 23. So she has transitioned actually a little bit because before, when she was 16, 17, she'd say, you're doing that thing. You know, you're like, I'm the coach, you know, right. dad, just be normal. Whereas now she will ask for that. I need that conversation, you know, right. because she's, and I think we see that in businesses, you know, when leaders go on a course, they say, well, I, my, my team are looking like I'm an alien now because I'm asking these questions and I'm trying to be this coach. And I say, because they have to learn how to be coached. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's a two way street. Well, and there's times like with your daughter, as an example, where there's a point where once you have credibility, you can come back and be direct. Right. So it's like your daughter values your opinion. Now she's not at it. She's not 16 and combative and living at home and, you know, trying to steal the keys for the car on a Saturday night. Right. (laughs) She's grown. She values your opinion. And, And I think in leadership and whether it's sports or corporate, it's kind of the same way in a way is once we have that credibility, then the recipient can get, can grant us kind of the permission to be direct. Right. And, and almost yeah, the responsibility yeah. to be like, Hey, it's okay. Just tell me what to do. I trust you. Right. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. It's and like I that. think that's such an important thing, I think. And I think often in sports, it certainly happens in business, but I see even in elite sports where I, I look at it as three kind of components, you know, you're either on the, on the sideline, coaching you're either on the training ground coaching and training or you're you're away from the game having a mentoring conversation you know walk around the park or a coffee you know but i don't see enough coaches doing the mentoring they they're 
they're doing the bench coaching. So they're, they're shouting and yeah. you know, out commands. They're doing some of the training. But I think the mentoring conversation is where the trust is built, you right. know, where we have this conversation. Like if you're my coach and you've given me, you know, 30, 40 minutes of your really good conversation, when you do bark at me or shout at me on the sideline, I'm like, yes, coach, no problem. Because we've got a relationship right. there. Well, it's like minus the mentoring. It's like, why should I do this? Like, how do I know you care about me? Right. Yeah. And like in, in business, especially, I mean, it's like if a sales manager is hit your numbers because I want to make yeah. my bonus. It's like, well, yeah. I'll hit my numbers if I feel like it. I'm not going to do it for you because you're only in it for right. yourself. Why should I be in it for you? Right. But if it's, hey, I believe Absolutely. in you. I hired you. I want to see you take my job. I've got a vested interest in you. Let's move up together. Let's be invested in each other's lives and each other's families, then you get to ask different things of yeah. each other. I, I think when you have it, a relationship. It completely changes the game. And the, and the problem is that that I see is that people see it as important. So intellectually, the leaders get it, right? So right. they're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. You know, I should have that conversation. But they don't see it as, they see it as important, but not urgent, you know, using the right. Eisenhower stuff. You know, it, it kind of gets bumped and it gets bumped and then then they have a problem. Whereas if they said, no, this is really important, this this meeting. You know, and it, it stays in a diary and we're going to have it. And then, of course, then there's the skill of having the conversation as well, not to take it for granted. It's a, an easy conversation to have, but uh, there's a skill. And, you know, I don't know what it's like for you, but you're a coach. You would have watched coaches. You know, we have supervision. And when people see me coach, they go, wow, but how did you find the question? And I'm like, but when I see these other coaches, like who are another level, you know, right. just, just watch them, you're like, their presence and their, the way they build report, you know, you go, it's, a, it's just an ongoing learning, you know, when it comes to. Well, how did, and speaking of that, what made you, cause it sounds like from a very young age, you were leadership leaning for sure. Even as a, I mean, it sounds like you're a bit of an individual contributor in sports for a while until you weren't, but who was the big influence for you growing up? Like what, because usually I think leaders are somewhat formed by the by the people that influence them when they're younger, at least in the direction that you go. Who were you leaning on when you were younger? And sometimes that can be a good example or a bad one, I guess. You know, it depends. Yeah, I, I suppose that when you ask me the question, the first kind of thought that goes to mind is, uh, you know, my father sadly passed away when I was 16. He died of a sudden heart attack when he was 48. And his, so his best friend, a guy called Jock, so the only Scotsman in my town, he was his best friend and he had a, a gym in his garage. And I used to go there when I was younger, but when my father died, I, I really threw myself into the, into the training and I would have these really good conversations with him. With, Jock, talk with about my Jock, with your dad's Jock, friend. Yeah. So we would train and then we would sit down, have some tea and he, he would have, we just had these great conversations. And it, and then I would, um, you know, when I had a, a tournament or, or something coming up, I would just make a point of going to see him because I would come out feeling 10 feet tall, you know? So I, I suppose that that was a big inspiration for me because I thought, gosh, if I could be half as motivational as that. What was it he was doing that made me feel that way? And this is an interesting topic in leadership because the role of, you know, how demanding to be of somebody, you know, and I, I don't know what it's like for you, but if I think back to some of the coaches that I've had, the ones that really were a catalyst for change were really demanding. Right. Me, you know? Right. But I suppose it's that kind of Sir Alex Ferguson approach where, you know, he was still considered as a father figure by all the players. Like, how do you... That's an art, I think, to have well, I, that kind of be that really demanding and totally. But I, I think still, it goes back to exactly yeah. what we were just talking about before this, where it's like, if I know, if I know, like for a fact that you've got my best interests at heart, yeah, then you can kind of kick the shit out of me. I mean, you can make me run extra laps. You can like, yeah. 
you can do whatever. And this, we can take this in sports or in business. But if I know that you absolutely 100% are looking out for me, even when you're being a complete asshole. Yeah. I'll kind of get that. And I I went, I have a military background and some of the best leaders I've ever met were in the military and they were so hard on me, but I understood, like, I just, I got it. And sometimes the more they believe in you, the harder they are because they're like, well, Andrew's going to be the next guy. Like he's, he's got to get tough. He's got to understand this. He's got to become a leader. Now, was his name Jocko or Jock? Jock. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's a nickname for Scottish people. And yeah. Got it. Was your dad still alive when you guys started hanging out? Or was this after your dad passed? Yeah, so we, my, when my dad was alive, I would go around the house. We did, he did judo, his son's play, you know, did judo. And, and we would go around the, and I would go to the gym and train there. But when my father died, I suppose it was my outlet. So I kind of immersed myself in it. And I just loved being with him and having these conversations. And he would tell me these stories about my dad. And But he would also you know, go out of his way and say, hey, I, I just subscribed to Roll Hockey Magazine. Have you seen this? Have you seen the way this guy's training? You know, he's playing in the RHI, which was the pro league at the time. You know, this guy's doing squats. He's doing cleans. Maybe we should start integrating some of that into your into your training. So nice. I was doing these, you know, like a little bit of powerlifting when I was, you know, 17, 18, kind of CrossFit-esque style right. training. This was 93, 94. And I think that gave me a competitive advantage, actually. Yeah, how definitely. was your how was your relationship with your dad? It was good. It was a good relationship. My we were talking about it because I have two sisters, and my father he was a, he was a big drink, a big party. He, he played cricket. He was a yeah, football player, a soccer player. Liked his beers, liked socializing. When I think back, I think he watched me play hockey once. You know, I think I remember him playing football with me in the garden once, despite the fact that he had his sports backgrounds. So we never had this, but he was very you know, very loving to, to mm-hmm. us all, you know, very, it always gives us a hug. It was always, you know, it was, it was a nice, he was great. I had a very good relationship with him. Yeah. I miss him a lot. Did the heart attack come from, was it a freak thing or was it an overall health thing that took him down? It was a lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> lifestyle thing. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was yeah. wondering based on what you were just saying. How did that impact yeah. you? Because I mean, it seems like not just with the sports that you played, but from everything I've read about you and listened to you talk about, you're certainly a health advocate, if, if not like a, almost like a visionary or a leader in, the, in, in that. So what's, did that influence you a lot? Your dad's passing oh, his lifestyle? Yeah, massively. But I think that's more so in the last four years because, well, a couple of things. My my health wasn't that good. I was, I'd, I'd throw myself into the hockey. Like I I was completely lost in it. My wife and I had been together for at that point for about four years. My daughter was, so my wife was a stepmother to my daughter. My daughter had lived with me since she was six. And so I I was just immersed in it. And then obviously what happened is that things started to crumble around me. I was getting gout attacks, like suffering with gout, which was something I, my dad had. And then, so that it was a real shakeup for me because I was, my relationship was failing. I was getting these inflammatory attacks in my body. And I was like, what is going on? How am I, you know, following the same, literally following the same pattern as my father. And I wasn't drinking like him or anything like that, but it was something going on. So that put me on a journey to think about health. And if, if you know anybody that's got gout, they spend the majority of the time on the internet trying to figure out what they can How eat. How to get it's, rid of it. Yeah, yeah, and it's, which you don't. And there's so much conflict and information. So that, so I started kind of, they were telling me not to eat meat and, and these things. And so I tried vegan. I tried, you know, sticking with carbs. But I didn't feel great. And, and then just started exploring kind of ancestral health and then I found that when I started doing that, and now I look back at what I was doing was repairing my gut. 
which was repairing my body, which was helping me mentally. And, and it, it was kind of life-changing really. And I, so I'm a big advocate of putting your body first, your health first, fix that. And then you can fix your relationships and then you can fix your mental health and then work and career and really i think it takes care of itself i agree completely and you know what's interesting about it though and i think and you may disagree with this and please you know just let me know if you do but i i feel like when it comes to diet especially in nutrition everybody gets very up on a pedestal about whatever's working for them right i'm vegan i'm not whatever and it's the way to be because i feel awesome and it's like I literally feel like humans are so unique that there is not only is there not one size fits all, there's not 20 different diets that would solve everybody in my opinion. You know what I mean? Like there's, right. yeah. there's just different people who react differently to different things. And I, and I think so when you do go Google something like, you know, how do I call my gout down? There's gonna be 20 different people that are all passionate about their approach because 20 people found 20 different things that worked for them. Right. And they're shouting it off the mountaintops, but you know, what yeah. works for one guy might make yours even worse. And I think gout is a vehicle that makes this all look bigger. But I mean, I think for all of us, whether we're feeling sluggish, I think there's a something to be said for like listening to ourselves. You know, if our energy is low, if our, you know, w- yeah. whatever it might be, our skin, yeah. all of that stuff plays a part. And to just do the things that inherently feel good to you over time. And I think we have to Absolutely. listen to our intuition a little bit more. Yeah, and trust it, you know, and and I think there are other precursors to that, you know, of getting into that state where you can trust, you know, where you're yeah. not just flying around, dealing with stuff, feeling stressed, thriving on cortisol, and, you know, that ability to kind of just slow it down and be able to, you know, whether you call it meditation, mindfulness, breath work, yes. you know, but finding time to build this in, which for your exec, your dominant-minded exec might find a bit bit fluffy you know oh yeah that, once they that whole doing- statement i just said when i was in that mode of just getting shit done i would have been like well that'd be nice if i had the time to actually sit down and do it and in the meantime you're going through the drive-through at a fast food restaurant right yeah. like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. so it actually yeah. does take first a level of consciousness or whatever you want to call it right yeah. of taking a pause and at least going what the hell am i doing because this doesn't feel very good and maybe i need to to slow down to actually figure out what's going on you know yeah absolutely and and i think going back to your other point you know the kind of n equals one as well you know that we're our own personal experiment right so i don't like it when i probably did it myself you know because when you have this kind of transformation you're like well you just just do what i did you know this is it works right and and you realize that actually it's not for everybody and and i found actually without going too deep or digressing too much the most part the people that say that their diet helps and this other diet helps is usually because they've just eliminated processed foods that's kind right. of the thing that they all have in common like and if you just do that then i think you're, you're doing uh, there's well. a there's a few universals right too much sugar is bad too much processed food is bad or any yeah. even i mean the mo- more you can eliminate the yeah. better exercise is good like there's some things we know yeah. about any diet right there's some key principles yeah <laughs> yeah exactly. you don't get yeah. to go like well i listened to my heart my heart said sit on my ass and it's like well that <laughs> yeah, yeah, might yeah, exactly. be, you might need some outside advice on yeah. that one so tell me about i i, I kind of sidetracked you off the hockey journey a little bit but i know that so you left it where the team was starting to get buy-in and really starting to, I think, get some momentum. And I know you guys went on to do some great things. So can you can you take me there? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So we we went to Pool B, the World Championships. So the World Championships, like ice hockey, are Pool A, Pool B, and different divisions below that. So we went into Pool B. We 
nearly been relegated the year before. So we'd lost to Australia the year before. Uh, our first game was against Australia. And I remember it very clearly, actually, because the captain said to me, what do you think the score will be today? And I said to him, I think we'll beat Australia 5 nothing." And he was kind of irritated by it because he said to me, you can't say that to the players. They need to be on it. You know, it's Australia as well. So Great Britain, Australia, the rivalry is is huge. And he thought I was being too complacent. I said, but the work we've done, the way you guys are playing, I have no doubt we'll beat them 5 nothing." And I remember going to the dressing room and the, all the shoulders were up, you know, like everyone was tense. It was like first game, my first game as coach. And I just said to them, then you go out there and fail for 20% of the time. Like just see how many mistakes you can make tonight against Australia. It's our first game. Fail as hard as you can. And I'm always certain if you fail for 20, 30% of the time, we'll still beat Australia. And all the shoulders came down. We beat them 6-1. So I was nice. right. You had the, you had the, the goal, goal differential. Right. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, yeah. that part, right? My co- the captain, he still talks about, you know, like, so that was good. That was a good start. And then we, we went on to uh, the Lord, the short of it is we, we won, we won Paul B. We beat Austria for the first time. Austria would move up to Paul A. They'd come down. Slovenia would go up. They'd come to, you know, it was kind of a fight between those two. So we, we beat Austria, which was great. We went up into the A-Pool and, you know, it was like, well, good luck. You know, yeah. first games against the Czech Republic, you know, world champions, so they had, I think, uh, Alex Hemsky playing. He was with the Dallas Stars at the time and earning 11 million US dollars a year. You know, I, Chris Endy was a cab driver in Brighton. You know, it was like kind of worlds apart. But we tied with the Czechs first game. Wow. We had a plan. So that was great. We we beat Finland, which wow. uh, and our goalie was nominal. And then we, we unfortunately, we, we lost to Canada in the quarterfinal. But we went into the game against Canada, you know, 100% believing we were going to win. Like it was just a, this change in mindset, same players, different behavior. It was just, a, it was just a great experience. And then unfortunately we played Sweden in a relegation game. It went down the following year. We, uh, we played Paul B again. So we we're the only team that actually went up against. So we played, mm-hmm. we, we won Paul B the following year. So we had this kind of four year period of, of just incredible results. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was great. And just a great experience. Yeah. And you guys ended up winning the gold over there, right? Eh? We won the gold in, in Paul B. In, in Paul yeah, B, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which gave us promotion into the A pool. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Is exactly that, that is that the only way up into the A? You have to medal? Yeah, to you have up? to win the playoff game oh, wow. you know, to go up into the into the A pool. Yeah. So it was the first time Great Britain had ever done that. And it was just a great, you know, being in the A pool and being with those teams and the dressing rooms are different. The treatment's different. It was just, it was yeah. great. It was just, for the guys, it was just a, such a great experience because we were the only... We were just amateur team there, you know? Yeah. So yeah. people talk about like, it's like cool runnings, I guess, you know, that kind of. <laughs> totally remember that movie. Or how or why did you transfer out of coaching? I mean, it sounds like it was going really well. I was burning out because, yeah. you know, it was, I was growing a business. I was trying to bring those principles. Oh, so this, not to interrupt, but that gets back a little bit to the gout and your relationship and the move to. Yeah. It was Trump, all kind yeah? of just coming to an end. I mean, okay. it was a, it was more insidious than that, but it, it you know, 2017, it, it really caught up with me. And I, so I stopped coaching properly in, in 2015 and because it, you know, I was obsessive about it, you know, and I, and I don't regret that as far as the results we got, what I regret is not being as focused on the other areas of my life. You know, it's kind of dropped the ball on that. And then, and that caught up with me and the stress with that. And I think the gout, wasn't just diet related. I think it was stress related. You, you know, mm-hmm. create acid in the body and and so on, and the inflammation. And that's when I, I guess, I started my own mini transformation. You know, in 2017, where I was, I was like, okay, I've got to look after myself here. I've got to get my my own oxygen mask on and start being there for my family. My wife and I separated for 
for two years. And, and then we decided to start fresh and we started sort of building trust with one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, we moved to Prague. It wasn't easy at first. We were still kind of working on things, but it's been amazing. I've, now I feel feel blessed. We just had little Eddie. He's uh, 13 weeks old. So, oh, wow. Um, you, got a, you got an infant? Yeah. So oh, wow. Congrats. Eddie, you know, Harry and Freya and my, my oldest daughter is now doing a, a course, a ski instructor course in Morzine, France. So it's, no, it's great. And, and we, it's, it's, I feel very lucky, Ken. I mean, you know, we have a good life and we, hockey is still a big part of my life here in the Czech Republic. I'm coaching. My son is six. He's playing at Sparta, which is the most prestigious club. My daughter's a goalie and she's playing at the other club. So we have a bit of rivalry in the house, which is quite good fun. But yeah, it's, but it's in balance and it, it works. And, and I thank COVID a little bit for that as well, because it kind of changed the business model and allowed me to do things a little bit differently. So what, and, and talk to me about that business model a little bit. So how did you, because now, when I hear of you as a player coach guy, I mean, I think of you as you know all the research I've done on you and shows that I've listened to you on and going through your website and your programs is exactly that is, you know, you're the guy that, you know, again, did these phenomenal things in sport, but then took them over to, or can take them over to the corporate side to teach the lessons mm-hmm. of athletes and coaches to corporate America. Can you expand on that a little bit and what you're doing there? I think like a lot of coaches, you go through a lot of different iterations. So I did the cons- consultancy work, you know, where I was following like a McKinsey around or, a, you know, and doing the, you know, spending time in the Middle East. And I was in the White Plains working up there as a consultant in New York and doing the traditional consultancy work. But I noticed that there was this, this role, particularly in sales, where they would hire or promote a top performing or high contributing salesperson to a management role, but they still had a sales target. And particularly in recruitment, it was really it was part of the business model in recruitment. But I see it now in tech startups and other organizations. I just done my master's in organizational psychology. And so I was kind of talking about this concept a lot. My acknowledgement of it was that these businesses, they could really open up their business and scale quite quickly if that person did the job well. If they did it badly, so they you know, all in on their sales, but neglected the, the management piece, or they just couldn't balance the two so that the sales would drop off the, the business would really suffer like you know you'd have a say a small to medium-sized business for example of 50 or 70 it was like overnight they were back at 20 you know and right. they were trying to grow because they they didn't have the leadership there to grow and people would talk with their feet and get fed up with the you know the culture so i decided well, that's a you know a problem that needs needs solving. So I designed a program back in 2012 for that. And obviously I was, I was doing the work with the Team GB as well. So I was kind of pulling these parallels together and testing them and getting feedback. And and then now it's become the kind of my main, my flagship program is the player coach. Which, so it's going into sales organizations, predominantly recruitment businesses and, you know, helping these high performing salespeople coach and, and lead teams. So and that's it's a very really specific basic. type of content. Yeah, because I would think that niche, whether it's recruiting or anybody else, has to do with, like you said, when there's a lot of companies, even big companies, that they'll have a local office. Like I used to work for one at, you know, huge, like 40 plus thousand employees. But at the local level, you're a guy or a girl that's got six sales reps, right? And a number. And you're participating in that number somehow, whether your name's on the board or whether you're going out on field rides with the reps or whatever it is, like you're driving a a collective number. And 
like most companies are like that unless they've got such scale that the sales or, or a model where the sales team is all inside, right? It's very rare that the leader just leads on a sales team. It's almost always that they've got to materially participate somehow, right? Or they'll take the biggest clients or they'll help close the biggest deals yeah. or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it could be, you know, they're still a rainmaker or they, you know, they just account management, but they've still got this dual role. You know, yeah. They've still got to, got to try and compartmentalize these these different roles and, and not drop that, you know, we talked about, I call it bench coaching on our program. You know, we are giving feedback, whether it's on the sales floor or virtually or acknowledging good work, you know, being in the game and giving feedback and then training, you know, making sure you're getting on the field and doing training. So that could be just getting your team together to do some problem solving and work through, you know, using a framework to, to do that. And then the mentoring. So I say bench coach daily, train weekly, mentor monthly. And if you systemize that, then you can focus on your sales, but that's your baseline, you know, just, Bench coach daily, train weekly, mentor monthly, get that diarized. And then there's the skill. We teach them the skill to actually do that and how to give feedback, how to keep your team motivated, how to run training, which is experiential and fun and interesting and engaging. And then how to have a good mentoring conversation, which is goal orientated, but it feels like a conversation, you know, and you're building that, that relationship and trust that we talked about earlier. Totally. I've seen so many people in the business world that sales, especially where, because sales reps by nature, I think, are ambitious, right? Or they should be. Like if you're hiring yeah. the right sales rep, so they're ambitious towards money, they're ambitious towards career, whatever it might be. And a lot of times I think what we do in sales leadership is we go, well, here's Ken and Andrew and Nick and John and whoever else and Susie. And well, Su Susie's closing 100 grand a month. Andrew's closing 90. Ken's closing 80, whatever. Susie's going to be the sales manager, right? Because she's got right. big yeah, numbers. And she doesn't. Yeah. 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 And it's like, we do it all the time. And that person wants that, right? Because they're ambitious. So they'll go like, hey, I'm your best performer. You should make me the sales manager. And I, th I think that is a very common way to screw up a perfectly good sales rep, you know, and, <laughs> and then, and yeah, then yeah. really hurt and your team. team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't get me wrong. If you have great performance, you should, that should absolutely give you a ticket to the interview process and to being considered, but you also got to trust the people around you no different again than that coach in a, in a sport environment that says, you're not going to play forward right now. You're going to play defense or whatever, right? Like, it's just like, that's yeah. where you fit. That's where your skill set is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so I like to put them into these, you know, different archetypes, I guess. You've got the Mavericks on your team, you know, that you might, you know, your soccer, you're, you're well, you don't need to know soccer, know who Cristiano Ronaldo is, I don't think. But yeah, he yeah. would be kind of my maverick. Sure. Would you yeah. Would you want him to be the head coach of Portugal right now? Probably right. not. I don't, I don't know. Versus a quarterback. So I talk about mavericks and quarterbacks. And, and so when I was building my core leadership team on on the hockey team, I, was like, I wanted a quarterback mindset. You know, like, like I'd rather have Tom Brady being the, yes. the player coach of the team than perhaps Ronaldo with that kind of that mindset. So that, that was a big thing for me was to find these players who other coaches might not pick. Right. Know, they might not select them because they not, might not be as fast and as offensive. They, you know, they'd rather have uh, all the players that are scoring the goals, right? And, you know, snipers. But for me, I needed someone who could slow things down on the rink, who could calm the dressing room down when I wasn't there, you know, to make sure that if they went for a beer that, you know, we're going for a beer, not yeah. 10. You know, yeah. all these different things that... But they've got that presence and that gravitas to to do that. 
They're the Roy so Kent a, of the. Uh, they're the Roy Kent of the Great Britain team, right? Do you ever watch that Ted Lasso show? <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, you know that kind of yeah. Without the bad language, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, but the one who's like he's going to gel the team together, even if he doesn't have the golden 100%. foot anymore. And you know when we were talking about he's that a good earlier, example of being demanding. You know he's demanding, yeah. but he had that thing where they kind of loved him, right? You yeah, because he cares. Ted, Ted Lasso needed that because he's not yes. that. Exactly. And I was a bit like that, you know. Yeah. When I'm also thinking when you took the team over, because I've thought about this almost every time, and I, I think this just came from getting beat up maybe a little bit in, in taking over teams and having to be in situations like you were with that with that hockey team of going, how am I going to get these guys to buy in? And we did it a lot in the corporate world with acquisitions, right? One company buys another, and let's say you've got 100 new employees coming to work, and you want them to do well, but the only way typically for the company being acquired to do well is to assimilate the culture. So how can you get someone to assimilate and kind of, I don't want to say fall in line, but kind of, right? They need to to get online. And I feel like the fastest ways to do that are the two that we just talked about. One is what I would call the shop steward. And I don't know if you guys have that term in the UK or not, but the shop steward is like unions in the United States. They have a shop steward. The shop steward is the guy that forms okay. the union. So they might not right, be a okay. leader necessarily, but they've got a mouth, right? They, they lead by influence and sometimes negatively, but they're the ones that if you don't win them over, they can take people down with them sort of, right? Yeah. So you've got yeah. the shop steward. And then, like you said, you've got the quarterback or the leader or however someone else wants to distinguish that. And I always found that like, if you can go in and assess a team right away and go, who are my influencers on this team? And again, there's going to be one that like is the maverick, like what you're saying, the maverick type of influencer. They might be an individual contributor, but they've got influence, right? That people watch yeah. them because they have good stats. They look up to them. It's right. that sales yeah. rep that maybe doesn't fit the culture or has a loud mouth or does things that are inappropriate, but they have good numbers. So people like respect them. And then you've got the other one that can actually bring the real leadership together. And I sort of felt like very early on as a leader, identify who those people are, win their hearts yeah. and mind, and let them win the other hearts and minds. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I have also had this theory that I think there are some mavericks who can transform yeah. into a quarterback. Who can they go through a level of maturity and you know, they just it's like overnight something changes in their life and they they just they they shift into it and, and some don't. You know, it sounds like that might have been you a little bit. You said when you were a player, you were a bit selfish and you went from being a selfish player to the gold medal winning coach. You know, so I don't know yeah, if you said I, selfish, but you said kind of focused on your own stats, right? So, yeah, no, I, I think I was. You know, I think I, I put my hands up and, and say that I mean, I, I think I was a team player, but I could ostracize myself a little bit. I was very focused on my health and my fitness. I didn't really like it when guys went out drinking and, you know, or didn't take care of themselves. I felt. That would let me, it was letting me down. That's the selfish part was that it was maybe in hindsight, could I have gone out and just, it was being a team player going out and having a, having a few beers with them. Whereas I was like, I'm not, I'm not putting this thing in danger. You know, I, I want to win tomorrow. And so in some ways, whilst I thought I was being the best version of myself in, in other ways, I was like, you're ruining my opportunity over here. So it was right. more about me wanting to win rather than yes. the collective so when I look back, and maybe I'm giving myself a bit of a hard time, but I just, that, that's kind of how I... Yeah, but it's sort of like imposing your standards on everybody else, whether that was yeah. the right thing for I them. Was. So yeah. it comes that, off it, maybe that a bit self Yeah, Yeah, I, I know it would irritate some of the guys. Yeah, for sure. So 
you know, that, that was just the way it was then for me. And I, yeah, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it until you said it that, yeah, maybe I did make that shift, you know, because I did, I was a very different person when I was coaching. Well, the reason I brought it up is I feel like the Mavericks that convert are the best leaders because they know what being a Maverick is like. I mean, you know, they have a point of reference. You know what I mean? It's why drug addicts are great drug counselors after, you know what I mean? Like right. they, yeah. they know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so these guys yeah. know how to pull people that are isolated, people that have good performance. And I think that's why it's so important to win them over. So Tell me what's going on with you now. What's what's kind of a week in the life of Andrew these days? So, so this week we've, we've been running a leadership course because our, it's it's online. So, a couple of we do like a two hour workshop every morning for a week. So that's been kind of what I've been up to today. We kicked that off. To, but other than that, you know, it's it's putting. I do a lot of content, as you probably noticed. I'm yeah. really kind of trying to embrace that more. I've kind of dabbled with it over the years, and I've not really been that consistent. Whereas now I'm I'm leading with content. So. So that's something I'm excited about doing and doing it for the right reasons, you know, not just for the sake of doing content, but actually what am I trying to achieve with this for my, for the person reading it, you know, my son's hockey team. So I'm quite, you know, he's on these six, he's on the ice three times a week. So I try and help out with the coaches there and that's, so that's busy and, you know, and then 13 week baby. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you're, so, so one uh, thing you're not doing is sleeping a lot, probably. So um, yeah, not a lot of sleeping yet, but no, my, my wife's incredible. And, you know, so yeah, we're good. And it's, it's, we're having a lot of fun. Very cool. Well, it's been a privilege to meet you. Really enjoyed our talk. It went by quickly. And yeah, I'm definitely going to be looking into your programs. We'll leave all the ways to get in contact with you. And of course, to, to check out your programs in the show notes, but thanks so much for being on. It's, it's been a pleasure, Ken. Thank you. This has been a Mission Matters Network production. Listen to this show and browse our entire catalog by visiting missionmatters.com.